KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, Cornell West should not run as a third-party candidate, but in the Democratic primaries instead. That's what D.D. Guttenplan says. He's editor of The Nation. Also, a comic novel about Ethel and Julius Rosenberg? Who'd have thought that was possible? But Francine Prose has written one. It's called The Vixen, and it's terrific. We'll speak with her about it later in the hour. But first, public libraries are often wonderful places, but they've become targets of right-wing attack in the culture war. For that story, we turn to Sasha Abramsky. Of course, he writes regularly for The Nation. His work has also appeared in The Atlantic, The Village Voice, and Rolling Stone. He's written many books, including The American Way of Poverty and The House of 20,000 Books. His new cover story for The Nation is titled The Small Town Library That Became a Culture War Battleground. We reached him today at home in Sacramento. Sasha Abramsky, welcome back. It's good to be on, John. Libraries. They're often indispensable places for lots of people. They're not just repositories of books. In a lot of poorer neighborhoods, they're often the nicest and the safest place a kid or a family can go. Kids can get help with homework. They and their families can use the computer. People can learn English. They can get help with official documents, immigration and citizenship, unemployment and social security. I'm reading here from the Los Angeles Public Library website, but lots of public libraries do this sort of thing. And there's one other thing. It's all free. It's for everybody, provided by the city or county. It's like an island of socialism in the middle of dog-eat-dog -dog capitalist America. One friend told me, if you want to find the socialist in Fargo, go to the library. And of course, libraries also have books, including children's books. And those are the books that have become the targets of attack by Republican culture warriors. For example, attacks on the library and the librarians in Dayton, Washington. That's what you wrote about for the nation. First of all, where is Dayton and how did this all start? Dayton's a tiny little community in the southeast corner of Washington state. It's about as far from any of the big cities um, in the region as you can get. Um, it's about a four and a half, five hour drive east of Portland, Oregon. It's about a four hour drive from Boise, Idaho. It's kind of in the middle of nowhere. It's got a few thousand people and it's got this lovely library. It's a New Deal era library. It was built in the 1930s after a huge amount of fundraising in the community. It's had this really good run for 75 years. But as you said, now it's under attack by a sort of group of cultural warriors who don't like the content of some of the books and have reached for a sort of nuclear option of shutting down the entire library or trying to shut down the entire library. Now, I understand from your piece that the attacks on the library in Dayton, Washington, are part of a national campaign inspired by an organization called Moms for Liberty. What is Moms for Liberty and how big is it? So Moms for Liberty started in 2021 in Florida, and it grew out of parents' rights movements around the pandemic, essentially. People who didn't want their kids out of school, people who didn't want their kids to be vaccinated, people who didn't want to have to wear masks and so on. And it's morphed and grown over the last two, three years. And so now it's this organization with hundreds of chapters around the country, and it's very influential in school board elections and the Republican Party presidential hopefuls sort of make 
a sort of homage to the Moms for Liberty going to attend their conferences and so on. And it's more from being just about the pandemic to being about the sort of great cultural war issues at the moment around race and around gender and around sexuality. So basically what they do is they go around looking for, quote unquote, offensive books that talk about issues of sexuality to young kids and talk about issues of race in a critical way. And then they highlight these books and they go after the libraries and the librarians and they work to get those books removed from the bookshelves or marginalized by being sort of put out of reach of children in, in the libraries. And more nefariously, I mean, it's one thing to have a debate over the books, but more nefariously, these um, anti-library groups have morphed into really personalized attacks against librarians. They accuse um, school librarians and public librarians of being pedophiles or of grooming children. They use this very loaded, very... Um, guaranteed to stoke outrage kind of language. And that's what I found fascinating in Dayton, that it's this little community with a ginned up culture war, basically. It's got a few books in the library that talk about sexuality, that deal with issues of transsexual uh, identity in particular. And those books have caused such a brouhaha that you now have this organization. It's led by a young woman called Jessica Ruffcorn. You now have this organization of locals that, as I said, it reached for the nuclear option. They basically said, look, if you're not going to remove these books, we're going to try and put forward a citizen initiative to be voted on to defund the entire library district. <laughs> this is extraordinary. Imagine having the sort of hubris to think that you have the right to shut down your community's library simply because it's stocking books that you view to be a little bit offensive. In your piece, you point out that there are forces on the left that also target uh, some books and some authors. Some authors are accused of cultural appropriation or ethnic stereotyping or other offenses. But you say there's a difference between the left efforts to target and ban some books and what the right has been doing. What is the difference? Yeah, well, let, let me be absolutely sort of upfront on this. I have no truck with book banning. I don't care whether it comes from the left wing or the right wing. It's misguided, it's bigoted, and it impoverishes us culturally. We shouldn't be a community that's so fragile that if we don't like a book, our immediate solution is to ban that book or to cancel the author. So I'm not in any way, shape or form defending left-wing book banning. I, th I think it's just as toxic as right-wing book banning. But I do think there's a structural difference. And the structural difference is that the Democratic Party as a whole has not bought into book bans, whereas the Republican Party as a whole now is using this to whip up an electoral base. So when you have an entire major political party that is on board with the project of banning books or limiting what can be taught in schools, you look at the way in which the um, curricula has been restricted in Florida and in various other states, that's a whole different ballgame. And so that's why I think that when the right goes after books at the moment in America, it's far more dangerous than when the left goes after books. So there is another difference as well. Generally, when the left goes after books, it's because those books contain fairly inflammatory racial language. That, that's, that's been the major provocation leading to book banning efforts on the left. Now, I don't think those books should be banned, but I do think there's a difference between being offended by racial language and in the right wing's case, just being uh, offended by marginalized communities. So the right has gone after deeply vulnerable deeply marginalized communities, the transgendered community, the teenage gay community. They've gone after racial minorities. They've gone after 
basically not groups with influence, but groups already on the margins. Now, that's the quintessential definition of a bully. When a strong person or a strong group goes after a weak person or a weak group, that's bullying. And that's being institutionalized and legislated on by the Republican Party at the moment. And that's why there's a difference. And that's why I think it's worth focusing more on what the right wing is doing around censorship, because it's far more toxic, it's far more destructive. So tell me a little bit about the people who are leading this effort, first of all, to censor and now to close the libraries in this one little town in eastern Washington. Who are the people? It's a small group of people religiously motivated on the whole. It's led by a woman called Jessica Rothgorn, who actually worked in a library in the recent past. She's a young mother. She volunteers for the Little League. She's, you know, perfectly pleasant. I met her on the, the stoop of her house and we talked for a while. She's perfectly pleasant when you have that conversation, except when you start talking about the idea of book banning. And suddenly you have this absolutely no compromise approach to book banning that, you know, is unfathomable to me. And Jessica Rothgorn and her um, group of um, fellow book banners have ginned up this sort of manufactured crisis. They, they identified a handful of books that um, were fairly sexually explicit, not in a titillating way. There was nothing pornographic about it, but they were sexually explicit in an educational way. And they looked at these books and they said they were inappropriate for children. Now, you can have a perfectly legitimate argument as to whether or not that's true. I certainly wouldn't say all of these books were 100% perfect. And, you know, all of these books, I'd be happy with kids of any age reading. Seems to me that there's legitimate room for having a conversation as to whether or not those books should be on kids' shelves in libraries. But it's one thing to have that debate internally. It's another thing to say, well, unless you agree with our demands to move these books, we're going to try and shut down the library. That's when you sort of end up in a deeply authoritarian moment. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing it in Idaho as well, just across the state line in Meridian, Idaho, and a few other places. We're seeing it in Michigan. We're seeing it in a handful of places around the country now, this notion that libraries are the enemy and that librarians are the enemy and that we are so vulnerable to books on library shelves that our default response has to be to close down the library. And so I think, you know, you asked who these who these people are. They start from a place of, you know, a legitimate debating point around what sorts of books should be in libraries. But they finish in this absolutely authoritarian position about defunding libraries and shutting down the choice of other people as to what books they should or shouldn't be able to access. This little town, of course, has a library board that governs the library. Who's on the library board? I assume these are college grads and professionals. The chair of the library board is a very interesting guy called Jay Ball, and he's a mechanic, an auto mechanic. He runs a car repair store in um, Dayton. And he's a lovely guy, and he's been reading books his whole life, and he loves library culture, and he's absolutely committed to the principles of free speech and free expression. So Jay Ball, of course, has also aroused the wrath of the pro-censorship movement because he said, look, it's not a matter of left-wing, right-wing. This is just a matter of freedom of access to information. And he stood firm and he supported the librarian. Um, to me, this is what libraries are about. They're not about elites. They're about ordinary people who realize the importance of knowledge and realize the importance of a free spread of ideas. Um, and someone like Jay Ball, to me, is you know a really important figure in a story like this. And it's, it's, it's what I love doing when I'm doing my journalism. You know, this nonsense, this absolute nonsense that libraries are the purview of an intellectual elite. They're not. Libraries are a democratizing force. O only in a library 
do you get people of all different classes, all different backgrounds, all different ages coming together and seeking to acquire knowledge? It's a wonderful thing. And the idea that you would shut down a library because you disagree with the content of a few books, to me, that's just unfathomable. You met a fascinating person in this little town of 5,000 people, Regina Weldert. Tell us about her. So Regina Weldert is a transgendered woman in her 70s. And she had been, I believe, a fisheries scientist and then retired and in her 60s transitioned and was now running a coffee roasting company in this little town of Dayton. And Regina Wilder said to me, look, I've never had trouble. Nobody's attacked me for my identity before in Dayton. In fact, she said, I've had more trouble when I go to the big cities like Seattle, where people heckle me and insult me. But then she said, now I feel scared because suddenly there's this cultural war going on in Dayton and suddenly intolerance is bubbling up to the surface. And Regina Wilder said to me, well, look, if you marginalize the voices of people like me, she said, or if you marginalize the voices of young people exploring their sexual identity or their gender identity, what you do is you push people into the closet, people who are already marginalized, already psychologically vulnerable, already at risk for abuse, already at risk for homelessness, all the things that transgendered youth are disproportionately at risk of. And you make it more likely, if you invisibilize them, you make it more likely that at the end of the day, they're going to be bad outcomes, that you know psychologically bad things are going to happen, or that they're going to end up on the streets with no resources to help them. And so Regina Welder said, look, I'm in my 70s, but I've got to fight against the censorship movement because it's trying to invisibilize people like me, she said. I think there's this sort of concept that you know, all the issues around gender identity and sexual identity, that that's a big city thing. Well, it's absolutely not true. You can go to any small town, any small community, anywhere in this country. And if you look, you're going to find people exploring those same issues about who they are and how they want to portray themselves to the world. It's not a big town, small town thing. But I think there's this idea among conservatives, among hyper conservatives in a place like Dayton, there's this idea that, you know, if we can just get rid of a few books everything's going to go back to the 1950s and everything's going to be easy to understand again. That's absolutely nonsense. You know, you can get rid of those books, but life is going to be just as complicated and just as messy and just as ambiguous today as it was yesterday. We've just made it harder on already vulnerable people. Well, one of the people they made it harder on was the librarian of their town. What happened with him? So this is a man called um, Mr. Vandenbach. And he had been attacked again and again and again for defending the sort of right of the library to pick and choose books. And he'd been called a groomer. He'd been called a pedophile. He'd had sort of violent threats against him online. Um, He'd been told he should be in prison. He should be in jail. He'd been heckled at public meetings. And he stood firm. He stood firm for over a year of this conflict. And he made sure the library still had those books. At the end of the day, though, he had enough. And a few months ago, earlier this summer, he packed up and left. He accepted a job somewhere else. He said, I've, I've done it. I've done everything I can here. I, I don't want any more of this. And he left Dayton. And he said to me, look, frankly, I've got real, no real interest in going back to Dayton. And I felt terribly sad about this because this was someone who had stood firm. And he had you know, faced some really quite gruesome personal insults for standing firm. But at the end of the day, he just felt it was too much. And I think this is the danger that you know, even if groups don't succeed in defunding libraries. And it's quite likely that that initiative will, you know, be defeated in November, because even conservatives in Dayton, many of them are very uncomfortable with getting rid of their library. But even if the library remains in place, 
at the end of the day, the librarian was driven out of office and the interim director who came in and succeeded him immediately moved some of those books that had sort of created such a furore, immediately moved some of those books away from the kids' section. Well, that's bowing to pressure from, you know, really authoritarian, intimidatory movement. And that's an ugly harbinger of what's to come. And I think that that's, you know, that's a real risk that you go around the country from place to place to place. And as these censorship wars heat up, even if they don't formally work, they create enough soft pressure that librarians say, you know what, this isn't worth it. Let me compromise on free speech just a little bit. Let me bow to these demands just a little bit. And that's a really slippery slope. One last thing. What was it like for you to go to this small town in rural Washington and talk to these far right wing activists whose actions you find so reprehensible? Yeah, I find it fascinating. And I've spent quite a lot of the last few years doing this kind of reporting where I find these movements in these communities and I go in and I talk to a lot of people. You know, this is to me what makes journalism worthwhile. It's okay to just talk to people that you agree with, but it's boring. It's far more interesting and far more productive and it's far more honest intellectually to talk to people from an array of different backgrounds. And it helps you understand where we are. I mean, look, if you want to understand where America is in 2023, if you want to understand the potency of these culture war issues, uh, look, if you want to understand why Donald Trump is still electorally competitive, despite facing 640 something years in prison, if you want to understand all of those things, you've got to understand these kind of cultural war conflicts that are going on. So, you know, I, lo- I love going to these places. I, I find but, surely, it- but surely they see you as, you know, the enemy. You know, it depends. I mean, I have a lot of times people saying, I'm not going to talk to you. I mean, Jessica Rothkorn originally said to me, I'm not going to talk to you. And I persisted and I just kept asking questions and I kept talking. And, you know, if you talk long enough and if you show an interest in what people are saying, people will talk to you. Not everybody. You can have some people who just will not talk to the media, come what may. But you can have a lot of people who after a while do. One of the things that sort of has increasingly struck me as being important about this moment is the dangerousness of our levels of polarization that we are so sort of confined to our own echo chambers and we're so willing and able to see a political opponent as the enemy. And that's really dangerous. You know, we live in a democracy and we've got to have an ability to, you know, at least have some conversations across ideological divides. So, no, I don't agree with these censorship movements. I think they're really dangerous. And I profoundly hope that these they don't succeed. But I think it's really important to talk with people who do buy into those movements and try and understand where they're coming from. Sasha Bramsky, his article for The Nation, The Small Town Library That Became a Culture War Battleground, is the cover story in the magazine this week. It's in-depth reporting at its best. You can read it online at thenation.com. Sasha, thank you for your work on this. And thanks for Ah. talking with us today. John, I always love talking with you. It's a pleasure. same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Cornell West should run as a Democrat, not as the nominee of the Green Party. That's what the nation's editor, D.D. Guttenplan, says, along with Bhaskar Sunkara, the nation's president. Don's books include American Radical, The Life and Times of I.F. Stone, 
also The Nation, A Biography, and The Next Republic, The Rise of a New Radical Majority. We reached him today at home in Brooklyn. Don, welcome back. Great to be back, John. Well, some of our friends say Cornell West's announcement that he's running for president is not serious. It's just an ego trip of some kind. You open your piece. Cornell West is a very serious man. Please explain. Well, quite simply, Cornell West has been involved in politics, however you call politics, for a very long time. He's also a major public intellectual. In fact, as we say in the piece, aside from Noam Chomsky, it's hard to think of another public intellectual with Cornell West's breadth of engagement or political experience. You know, he was an advisor to the Bill Bradley campaign in 2000. He was a very important surrogate and endorser of Bernie Sanders in 2016 and 20 and 2020, and was uh, a supporter of, of Barack Obama in 2012. So he's someone who has a track record in electoral politics, although not as a candidate. And he's certainly someone who deserves to be taken seriously. Cornell supported Biden in 2020. His argument that year was that, quote, a mediocre, milquetoast, neoliberal centrist is better than fascism, and a fascist catastrophe is worse than a neoliberal disaster, close quote. Now he says, quote, by refusing to speak to the needs of the poor and working people, the Democratic Party helps to facilitate and enable the Trumps and DeSantis's. What do you say to that? I think he's absolutely right. Thanks in no small measure to Bernie Sanders, Biden ran on an incredibly progressive platform in 2020. And as we know, he defeated Trump. But his first term has matched every success with a disappointment. Because let's remember, the Biden administration did terrific things to end childhood poverty in America, to support people's incomes during the COVID pandemic but let many of those measures lapse. He, he advocated climate and industrial policy initiatives with the Inflation Reduction Act, but also approved a massive new drilling project in Alaska. The choice between four more years of Biden or Donald Trump is not difficult, but if ever there was a president in need of a left opposition, it's the centrist now in the White House. So, you know, there is a great deal of disappointment in the land, David Dan makes a very important ar argument in The Prospect, which is that you can't appraise the utility of improving people's lives as a means of winning votes unless you actually improve people's lives. And the Democratic Party has de delivered a great deal of rhetoric under Joe Biden about delivering people's lives, but time and again, it has failed to deliver. So in that sense, Cornell West is absolutely right. He's also right, I think, to point out the danger of this kind of cynical politics, which is that it leaves people disillusioned with government. It leaves people disillusioned with the potential for social democratic change. And as I've written in the nation before, if you close the door to a populist left and you leave the door open to a populist right, you are walking on very dangerous ground. And yet Cornell's plan is to run against Biden as a third party candidate for the Green Party. That is itself helping to facilitate Donald Trump or whoever the Republican candidate might be. Uh, actually, that's not quite my view, John. My view is that it is 
to pitch it at Dr. West's level, an expensive spirit and a waste of shame to run as a <laughs> candidate. It's an expensive spirit in a waste of shame to run as a Green Party candidate. Nice. Democratic platform is available and is the best public platform for raising policy issues. And that if he is as serious as we hope he is, he ought to run as a Democrat. That failing to run as a Democrat lays him open to exactly the kind of condemnation you laid out, which is this this is a self-indulgent ego trip at best and at worst, a vote sucker in the general election, which may enable a Donald Trump to squeak past. So that's why we think he should run as a Democrat. But that's that's different from saying that what he's doing now is preparing the way for Donald Trump. I think what he's doing now is preparing the way for his own political irrelevancy. Cornell, as you say, uh, worked hard to elect Obama, but uh, our colleague Joan Walsh pointed out at thenation.com, once Obama became president, Cornell called him, quote, a black mascot of Wall Street oligarchs and a black puppet of corporate plutocrats. He went on to claim that Obama was afraid of, quote, free black men, close quote, thanks to his white ancestry in Ivy League education. I think black voters who know those quotes are unlikely to vote for Cornell in 2024, and it casts a shadow over his present campaign, seems to me. Again, we're going to have to differ, John. After all, Joan Walsh is the person who thought that black voters who knew that Hillary Clinton had described young black men as super predators and had rubber stamped her husband's crime bill were going to nonetheless choose to vote for Hillary in 2016. I think black voters are as discerning as any other voters, and they'll decide whether Joe Biden or Cornell West speaks to their interests on the issues. I do think that Cornell West's, among his great talents, is a talent for pungency of expression, uh, which you and I as fellow writers can only envy. Uh, That doesn't mean he's always on the money. But uh, certainly he has a way of putting things that sinks in and lets you remember it. And that's yet another reason why I think he would be an adornment to the Democratic primary debate stage. In 2016, Cornell supported, uh, worked hard again for Bernie in the primaries and then switched his support to Jill Stein rather than Hillary in the presidential race. The latest news on this front is that this week, Obama strategist David Axelrod compared Cornell West to the Jill Stein campaign of 2016. Uh, and reminded us that some people at least have blamed the Green Party 2016 campaign for splitting the vote for Hillary Clinton in key electoral states. Chilstein did win more votes than Trump's margin of victory in Wisconsin and Michigan. And of course, if Hillary had won Wisconsin and Michigan, she would have become president. But of course, that argument assumes that people who voted for Jill Stein would have voted for Hillary if Stein were not in the race. But of course, they voted for Jill Stein because they did not want to vote for Hillary. That's Um, correct. And the only people who really make that argument regularly are the Hillary Clinton supporters who refuse to look in the mirror and, and acknowledge what a terrible campaign she ran, including failing to actually campaign actively in Wisconsin and Michigan, and also the many, many reasons why she was an awful candidate at that moment. I am not a a fan of spoiler candidates. 
if it comes down to the choice between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, I will vote for Joe Biden, just as I did in 2020. But that doesn't mean that Joe Biden doesn't need a hard shove to the left, both for the good of the country, because right now he's running a Rose Garden campaign, which is not only uninspiring, but desperately depressing, but also for the sake of his own campaign, because otherwise, as John Nichols has argued, we see the, the uh, spotlight to the, to the Republicans during the entire primary season. If there's no Democratic primary action, then as people become engaged with the election, all they have to do is try and figure out whether Ron DeSantis is better or worse than Donald Trump. That's not a task I think anybody should be condemned to. Well, I think the best argument for Cornell running in the Democratic primaries is Bernie Sanders' history as a candidate uh, in the Democratic primaries. Primaries. Bernie Sanders was has never been a member of the Democratic Party. He always says he's a Democratic Socialist, but he made that very bold decision to enter the Democratic primaries with his politics. And I think we all agree that Bernie's primary campaigns really did make the Biden presidency more progressive. And that's the role that you and I are hoping that Cornell could play. Well, yes, I partly agree. Today's going to be a day of partial agreement. <laughs> okay. I think if, if Cornell West only has the same influence that Bernie had, which is to say, completely revolutionizing the Democratic Party platform, firing up the activist base, giving young people a reason to turn out and be excited and think about politics, that would be great. But I think there's a difference between Cornell West and Bernie Sanders that cuts both ways. You know, Bernie Sanders is a senior senator from the state of Vermont. He's a very experienced legislator, and he's got a lot of savvy when it comes to Washington. Cornell West is none of those things. On the other hand, Cornell West is a comparatively young man, and he could actually become president. And as Baskar and I argue in this editorial, that would be historic, and we think he'd be a terrific president. So running just to influence the debate may not be worth the candle, but nobody runs for president just to influence the debate. You have to have, as Barack Obama acknowledged, a certain kind of psychosis to think you can be president. And I would encourage Cornell West to entertain that kind of psychosis and see how far he gets. D.D. Gutton plan. You can read his editorial co-authored by Bhaskar Sunkara titled Cornell West Should Run as a Democrat. That's at thenation.com. Thank you, Don. It's great to be partially in agreement. <laughs> Thank you, John. It always makes me feel better when, when, when we're at least in partial agreement. <laughs> Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. A comic novel about Ethel and Julius Rosenberg. Who'd have thought it was possible? But now Francine Prose has written one. It's called The Vixen, and it's terrific. During her 50-year career, she's published 30 books, along with reams of essays, reviews, columns on all kinds of topics, Anne Frank, Peggy Guggenheim, Caravaggio, and Bacon. That's what the New York Times says. So it's a pleasure to say, Francine Prose, welcome to the program. 
Thank you, John. It's a pleasure. Well, in The Vixen, who is our protagonist, Simon Putnam? And more important, who is his mother? <laughs> uh, well, Simon is a um, guy from Brooklyn, from Coney Island, who's just graduated from Harvard. And uh, as happens with so many people, myself included, he's graduated from college and has no idea what he's supposed to do with the rest of his life. So he's returned home to live with his parents in their apartment. Uh, his mother... His mother knew Ethel Rosenberg as a, as a young, as a girl, as did my mother. But I should also add that Simon loves his mother. I mean, his love for his mother and his respect for his parents is one of the things that drives the book. And, and really, it wasn't until I started talking about the book with people that I realized how rare that is in fiction. I mean, people have been saying to me, I just can't think of another novel where someone a young person likes to spend time with his parents. I went, okay, <laughs> all right. I had no idea that was so strange, but that's certainly what happens. In any case, he goes home to their apartment in Coney Island and the novel begins on the night of the Rosenberg execution. And they're watching, he and his mother and father uh, are watching television and the reports of the execution from the execution are being, are interspersed with, 50s sitcoms with I Love Lucy and the Ricky and David, the Ozzy and Harriet show, you know, with, with the sort of bogus 50s sitcom families being interspersed with Simon's real family. And then, of course, with the Rosenberg family being horribly disrupted at that moment. So, so these three, at least three families are all there are all kind of uh, intersecting at that moment. Did you say that your mother was a childhood friend of Ethel Rosenberg, just like Simon? Yeah. she. They went to uh, Seward Park High School together. They all grew up on the Lower East Side. And, and by, my mother, all through her mercifully long life, had three friends who were her childhood friends. And they all knew Ethel. They all, and I asked them about it. And they were sort of, um, you know, her, her execution was a tragedy, to them as it was to, to most people who were alive at that time. But but I think they were also slightly competitive with Ethel as, as young people. I mean, she sang, <laughs> she sang the Star Spangled Banner for the high school auditorium and the high school auditorium. So, and they were very ambitious, my mother and her friends. And in fact, all these girls, I mean, they were first, first generation American girls. Their families had immigrated from Eastern Europe, most of them. And they really were strivers. So, so the idea, first of all, that someone would be talented was more talented than they were was <laughs> anathema. And then, and then also the fact that that Ethel's politics, that she was a communist, and they were, I think, so so intent on making the American dream their dream and on getting ahead in America, that I I, I think it. I don't think it made a lot of sense to them, although they, you know, it wasn't as if they didn't have a social conscience, they did. But but the idea that, that you wouldn't, or, the, or the, let's say that your respect for American democracy was limited in some ways, was, was quite hard for them to understand. So in your novel, Simon gets a job at a publishing firm editing the slush pile, the unsolicited manuscripts, and then he is given his first novel to edit and uh, what is its title? The Vixen, the Patriot, and the Fanatic. You know, I sort of like the earlier title for the novel, A Simple Box of Jello. <laughs> but but that takes some explaining. Yeah, well, well, of course, you know, the main piece of prosecu 
prosecutorial evidence in the Rosenberg case, or one of the main pieces, was uh, this jello box, which was cut into a kind of uh, jigsaw pattern. And supposedly the way the two Russian spies recognized each other was that these two halves of the jello box fit together like puzzle pieces. I mean, this was so patently absurd from the beginning, <laughs> the idea that this would happen. I mean, since the novels come out, I've thought about the Cold War and, way, and in some ways I was in the middle of it when I was writing. I mean, it was sort of circling around me and, and the same, but I thought about it and, and it's, it's only recently occurred to me how much theater was involved. I mean, this, the gel, you know, the so-called jello box or the made up jello box or whatever was just a piece of theater as was uh, many of the real details of these espionage cases, because ultimately nothing happened. We didn't go to war with Russia. We were not, there was no nuclear annihilation. If they got the A-bomb, they already had the A-bomb. So uh, it was just a kind of shadow play. I mean, I guess it's a bit of a spoiler, but part of the novel becomes about the CIA and and what the CIA was doing during all no this. No spoilers. Time. No spoilers, please. No spoilers. Okay. <laughs> well, just off the subject of the novel, one of the things that seems clear to me is that this Cold War was partly a distraction from the things that were actually going on, from the, the various nefarious things that our government was doing all over the world. And the Russians were doing. I mean, the Russians were killing mass numbers of their own people. And we were making sure that mass numbers of other people got killed in other countries in which we were interfering. So the novel in your novel, that's The Vixen, The Patriot, and The Fanatic, is about a commie spy who's a sexpot and a nympho and who has really big breasts. Is that a fair description? Yeah. Yeah, I know. Don't you love the fact that nympho is no longer... <laughs> no longer a current word in the English language. Sex pot, I'm not so sure. But yeah, she's she's this, I mean, the whole book is this kind of lurid, uh, bodice-ripping thriller, that, which Simon is assigned to edit. But, it, but again, it's not so different from a number of books that were popular in the 50s. I mean, these historical, big historical romances that I read. I read tons of them because, uh, because I didn't know they weren't great books. I just didn't know. No one had bothered to tell me that they weren't so-called quote-unquote literature. Uh, you have what I think is the first sex scene in literature set at Coney Island on a ride called the Terror Tomb. The moans and blood-curdling screams come not from our two protagonists, but from the corpses and the ghosts that pop up out of the dark. Thank you for that. <laughs> Anytime. Well, you know, I i mean, I've written about this as, as an essay, nonfiction. That was one of the traumas of my childhood. I mean, not sex in the in the dark ride, but the fact that I, my brother and I were taken on the dark ride when I was about, I don't know, seven or something. And, and, and just incidentally, those rides apparently lasted 30 minutes. So there was enough time to have sex on the dark ride, if that's what you're going to do. And, and when I came home from Coney Island, I, I didn't sleep for a week. And finally, I told my mother what had happened. And, and it just so happens that there's a very beautiful Dan Arbus photo of the interior of that very same dark ride of the tracks and and the monsters, which in her photo, you realize how how goofy and primitive they are. But when you're a kid, nothing could be more, you know, the sound of the screams, the clanking chains. So I now have a print of that photograph on my wall so I can... Uh, 
<laughs> I can revisit the terror anytime I want to. And I looked at it when I was writing the novel. I looked at it many times just for a sense of what it might have been like. So Simon's uh, employer, the people publishing uh, this terrible book, is a respectable firm, Landry, Landry & Bartlett, publishers of literary fiction, biographies, and poetry. Uh, is this based on a real company? Well, I've been asked several times, actually, if it's based on Farrar Strauss, which it isn't. It actually is not based on Farrar Strauss, although they were my publisher briefly. My first publisher was Athenaeum. My first novel came out in 1973, 73, I think, at Athenaeum, and, um, which no longer exists. But, but the office in the novel is very closely based on the office at Athenaeum. So, so when I needed the architecture of the office in my mind to be able to write it, I saw those kind of rabbit warrens of, of halls. And then at the end, there was the office of Pat Knopf, who was the uh, head of Athenaeum at that time. And I, and I was taken there as a, I was a kid. I was in my 20s, early mid-20s, to his baronial office, which was like the office in the novel. I mean, <laughs> you know, hunting dog pictures on the wall. I mean, very much the British gentleman's club. And, uh, and he said to me, Pat Knopf said to me, you didn't write this whole book all by yourself, did you? Which was, you know, at that point, you could say those things to young women and not mm. lose your job. Oof. oof, right, oof. But and what was I going to say? I said, oh, yes, yes, I did. So, uh, but that was the atmosphere. That was certainly the atmosphere of, of publishing in the 70s, which basically was the 50s, was still the 50s. So the Rosenbergs were executed in 1953 for espionage. Simon's mother thinks the Rosenbergs were innocent. What does Simon think? Well, he doesn't He doesn't know. And in fact, the question of the Rosenbergs' guilt or innocence or what they did and what they didn't do, as I was writing the novel, was was seemed to me to be irrelevant to what I was doing and, and and in some ways irrelevant to Simon. I mean, his connection to the case is through his mother. So his reluctance to work on this uh, hideous novel is partly because he feels that it's a betrayal of Ethel and, and Julius, but more than that, because he feels that it's a betrayal of his mother and his parents and, and all the ideals that his family have and what his family believes in. So it's it's much more about what his mother thinks than yeah. about what he thinks or about what I think. So just for the record, I'm speaking now as a professional historian. We know that uh, Julius was a spy, but he did not give the secret of the A-bomb to the Russians. The, the Russians had much more qualified nuclear scientists uh, helping them uh, with that. And Ethel, the evidence is clear, was innocent, was framed by the FBI. Her brother, David Greenglass, testified that Ethel typed the documents, but many years later, he told the New York Times writer Sam Roberts that he didn't remember whether Ethel typed the documents and his testimony was a lie. And Sam Roberts' book had another shocker. He interviewed William P. Rogers, who was deputy attorney general at the time of the execution. Later, uh, he was secretary of state for Nixon. And he had an amazing concession uh, about Ethel. He said, quote, she called our bluff, close quote. Uh, they hadn't really wanted to execute Ethel. They hoped she would persuade Julius to cooperate in naming other people. The Rosenbergs, as we know, didn't cooperate. Um, that's the history. But, of course, our man Simon doesn't know about uh, David Greenglass and, and, and doesn't know she called our bluff. What he does know is what Ethel told their lawyer 
after the death sentence, you will see to it that our names are kept bright and unsullied by lies. He can't stop thinking about that. Yeah, and that really was was in my mind all the way through the writing of the book. I mean, the, that idea of some kind of truth or some kind of integrity or some kind of loyalty to historical fact or to the victims and or the, certainly the victim in this case, Ethel, uh, is is foremost in Simon's mind and, as it was in mine. I mean, and because honestly, writing a comic novel about the Rosenbergs was not an easy thing to persuade myself that I was going to do. I mean, it was really, once I realized what was happening, it's like, oh, my God. So so keeping that line uppermost in my mind gave me a kind of courage because I thought, well, I'm in some ways trying to do what uh, she asked her lawyer to do. Poor lawyer who outlived them by less than a year. The New York Times reports that you had wanted to write a novel about the Rosenbergs for 10 years and that you had 14 false starts on it. Were all 14 funny? They were awful. No, you know what they were, actually? They were, I didn't have the first chapter. The prologue, the first the first chapter where the family's watching uh, TV was essential. It was, a, it, it was a thing that made the rest of the book possible. And I didn't have that. So I kept starting the book with what's now the first real chapter, which is Simon's point of view about his leaving college and so on and so on. And it just felt wooden and it felt wrong and it didn't it just wasn't working so those 14 versions which i started numbering after a while were varying attempts to get simon's voice on the page and then once i had that prologue i found that i could do it so you know it's a mystery i mean why you can't do something and can't do something and can't do something then suddenly you can do something really is a mystery but in this case it seemed clear to me what turned it what made it possible one more thing. You teach in a prison, the Eastern Correctional Facility, through the Bard College Prison Initiative. You are a writing faculty at Bard. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, well, it is a wonderful program. It's an incredible program. And, and in fact, there's a there's a four-hour documentary called College Behind Bars that aired on PBS. That's fantastic that anyone should watch it. And in general, anyone who has a few extra dollars should give it to the Bard Prison Initiative. It's a college program for for incarcerated people in, in New York State and a number of different prisons. And it's really like going to BARD. I mean, they have to, the students have to do the same things that BARD students have to do. They have to have it write a, a complicated senior project. There's a freshman, uh, I mean, a first year seminar that they have to participate in. And the two times I've done it this past semester and in the past, I, it was part of the BA seminar. So they were literature classes. I mean, I don't, in fact, teach writing, although that's part of it, but they're literature classes. So the first time I did it, we did Great Expectations. We did Dickens's Great Expectations, which I chose because there's a convict at the center of the novel. I mean, Magwitch, the escape of Magwitch is what begins the novel. And then and then Pip's own moral dilemmas are played out against the background of... The, and, and my students got it. And the students are incredible. The students are the most motivated and hardworking. And this semester was was especially difficult because of course we couldn't go into the prisons because, mm -hmm. because there was COVID. And, in, and the classes, the school kept being shut down for several weeks at a time because there was COVID raging through the prisons. So I was doing the class on speakerphone. 
So I couldn't see my students. They couldn't see me. And um, the acoustics were not great. So they could hear me perfectly well, but I couldn't hear them unless they came right up to the speaker. I know that's that's how I thought it was going to be. And I kept thinking, well, this is impossible. Anything is better than nothing. Whatever I do is better than not doing anything. But in fact, it was transcendent. It was really extraordinary because the students were so great. And also, I just, there was something, I mean, I'm trying to write about it now, but but there was something of the confessional about it because when you can't see the person you're talking to. So I just talked about literature and about these texts that we were reading and, and the students got the text. I mean, there was a wide range and really got it. And they were, they participated as much as they could given the impossibly difficult circumstances. And it wound up being a great experience for me. And I hope for them, they wrote papers as if it was a normal time. I mean, it was complicated because they couldn't always get access even to the computers because the, everything was shut down and they were in quarantine, but they managed to write papers. They sent me through a complicated system papers. And, um, and I was very glad that I did it. Francine Prose, her irresistible new novel, The Vixen, is about a guy starting out in publishing whose first job is editing a terrible novel where Ethel Rosenberg is a sex pot and a spy. Francine Prose, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Mm-hmm.